This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Peter Fritcher about his new book, Hitler's First Hundred Days, When Germans Embraced the Third Reich. You tell a dramatic story, Peter, about the turning of a page of world history in the space of a 15-minute conversation in Berlin on the morning of January 30, 1933. Who were the men in the room, and why had they become the most powerful politicians in a Germany violently at odds with itself, unable to reconcile a socialist left with a nationalist right? Well, there were about 10 people in the room, but the most important people were, were the uh, president of Germany, that was Paul von Hindenburg, the old general from World War I, who had won a uh, presidential election in 1925 and then was reelected, actually against, running against Hitler uh, in 1932. Uh, Hitler himself, who was the um, chief of this explosive new insurgent populist party uh, that had become the largest uh, party uh, in um, German politics. And then there were a variety of right-wing characters, uh, including uh, a former chancellor, um, a a Catholic dandy, his name was um, von Papen, and then there was uh, an old German nationalist, who didn't have so many votes, but had been a uh, standard feature on the German right-wing scene, and his name was Hugenberg. And their plot, what they really wanted to do, was to um, destroy the republic, uh, whether by constitutional or unconstitutional means, and install an authoritarian state. This is the Weimar Republic that had been established at the end of World War I, uh, through the German Revolution in November uh, 1918. And they could not live with this republic, and they could not live with its modernist moors, and they could not live with its social democratic uh, leaders. And um, at, by 1932, there was a paralysis in the political system. No party and no grouping really had a, uh, a majority which allowed very few people around the presidential office uh, to hold enormous power. What had been going on in the 20s in Germany to produce the paralysis and the vacuum? I mean, there's the inflation of the 20s, and there's the depression. I mean, what are the circumstances in the streets of Germany through the 20s that produce this paralysis? One forgets that the support for the republic was two-thirds of the people in 1918, 1919, 1920, and that support dwindled to one-third. And the reason for that is indeed places like the inflation uh, in 1923 and the Great Depression that really hit Germany uh, in Germany. It was also the result of a growing populist right-wing insurgency at the grassroots uh, that sapped more and more power of from moderate and placed it in the hands of daredevil insurgent uh, right-wing anti-democrats so that by 1930, 31, 32, um, 
there was no Republican majority, uh, nor was there an anti-Republican majority, and hence the uh, paralysis in uh, 1933. And the men in the room want to establish an authoritarian state. That's their common objective. Exactly. It would be, it would, it would uh, bend back the influence of the socialists and the liberal cosmopolitan influences. Uh, It would establish a more, uh, in their view, a more efficient, uh, strong-armed state that would be able to uh, re-enter great power politics in Europe, since Germany had been uh, pretty much uh, delimited in what it could do by the Treaty of Versailles. So it was both an ambition to, um, to make Germany stronger, both inside and outside. Well, what was the upshot of the conversation? They had agreed that Hitler would be chancellor. That took them a while. It took them about a month uh, to agree to that. But then how much power uh, would Hitler have? And the whole question turned on whether there would be new elections. Because if there were new elections, chief executive of the state would be able to uh, probably gain a majority and would then possibly uh, be able to change the Constitution so that emergency powers were in the hands of Hitler, the chancellor. Fifteen minutes in the room were really about who, was, who would wield uh, emergency power if there were new elections. And so it was about the elections, but it was really about emergency power. And at that point, there was a debate. Uh, but in the end, the men in the agreed to, and if Hitler won those and could, with other parties, gain a two-thirds majority, he would be able to change or indeed suspend the Constitution, which is exactly what happened uh, 65 days later. Does the transfer of power, Peter, come right out of that room, right out of that conversation on the morning of the 30th? Is it suddenly announced that... Hitler has the power? Well, what's announced is that Hitler has been made chancellor. Oh, I see. Two days later, there's an announcement that there will be new elections. And, uh, and then the election campaign begins, with the difference that now the Nazis are campaigning from the inside of the government rather than outside the government, and they wield enormous power in doing so. They also gain uh, emergency powers over the police in the state of Prussia, and uh, they have full access to the radio as government officials. And so, so therefore, they have huge advantages as they come into this last election campaign in the Republic in the winter of 1933, much greater advantages than they had in previous election campaigns. And they're able to pull off with their coalition partners a majority. Uh, and then with other parties uh, who are... Um, you know, overall, really growing enthusiasm in the nation for the Nazis, they all fall in line, and they agree to suspend the Constitution. The only party that votes against the suspension of the Constitution are the Social Democrats, uh, the bull, the moderate socialists, uh, the bulwark of German uh, democracy. But there's a two-thirds majority, and the uh, executive, the emergency executive powers uh, fall into Hitler's hands. And then the reign of terror begins. And it begins very quickly. I mean, the meeting in the, in the chancellery office on January 30th fit in the dates of the Reichstag fire and the 
election in March. I mean, those three events are moving uh, very rapidly, and, and the seizure of power by the Nazis is, is very uh, rapid and firm. Right. At the beginning, before the, the elections and before the exchange of emergency power into the chancellor's hands, um, Hitler needed to get everything countersigned by the president, Hindenburg. But he did countersign. So within days, the Communist Party is not allowed to hold open-air rallies. Uh, within a matter of a week or two, our ban on end. Within three weeks, the Nazi paramilitary gangster, the SA, are, are made into auxiliary police in the state of Prussia, which is two-thirds of Germany. At the end of February, on day 30, uh, the uh, op- the the the, um, the 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 fire in the Reichstag gives the Nazis the opportunity uh, to declare uh, temporary emergency powers that then are made permanent uh, three weeks later after the election. Hitler shows up after the fire. He shows up screaming in the Reichstag, right? It's, a, it's a, whether it's a whether it's a performance or whether he's completely indignant and angry uh, is unclear because we don't quite know who set that fire, or whether he knew about it. But he is now. This is his opportunity now to do a full assault on his enemies, and he's going to crush and destroy Marxism. Something that he's uh, promised uh, for many years. Uh, but this is now his opportunity. He's going to uh, attack the communists as well as the moderate socialists, and his paramilitaries are unleashed. And, and how are they unleashed? What are they doing in the months of, say, February, March, April? How, how are they behaving? It's violenting. The, the day after the Reichstag fire, uh, which is the 28th of February, uh, just 30 days into uh, his chancellorship, um, the the uh, brown shirts, his paramilitary force, the SA, uh, act as auxiliary police in conjunction with the police. They arrest uh, communists and then go after the Social Democrats a few weeks later. So massive numbers of people are uh, put into jail, and the communists are completely unable to campaign in the uh, election. Uh, and there's a there's a there's a real rain, a sense of terror spreads throughout Germany in the in the last week before the election. And, and the the SA drags politicians, ministers out of their offices and humiliates them, right? After the election that they then win, uh, they go after the ministers, uh, whether it's a mayor or it's a um, uh, a deputy in the parliament. And sometimes they humiliate them publicly through the streets uh, in order to show that the, the, these are completely wicked people and that the people's justice, in whose name the Nazis uh, claim that they are acting, that the people's justice is being served. And so the concentration camps uh, fill up. Some are official concentration camps that we know about, like uh, Dachau, um, but others are just in the cellars uh, of restaurants and uh, basements and houses. This is happening with incredible speed. I mean, this is a matter of months. I mean, this weeks. Is, this, is within, this is within 35 to 40 days of um, Hitler coming to power. On day 30, I think, is the Reichstag fire, 
uh, five days later is the election, and then the reign of terror begins. The Nazis win the election. They're the biggest party in almost all precincts in Germany. One of the real strengths of your book, Peter, is the way you source it. I mean, you base it on diaries, on letters, the words and witness of people who were there, as well as what's being said in the newspapers and what's being shown in the in the theaters and the films. And so how are the German people reacting to Hitler? I mean, is it a matter of coercion or cons- consent? Well, the private documents, letters and diaries in particular, or show how people struggle with what's going on in front of them and how they interpret it and how they view it. When Hitler comes to the chancellorship uh, on January 30th, Germany is an extremely divided country. You can say half are, half are pro-Nazi and half are anti-Nazi. And then suddenly, two or three months later, everybody seems to have accommodated and adjusted themselves to the regime. How did this happen? Some of it is terror. Uh, some of it is fear. But people also went through a conversion and decided that, that Hitler would turn a new page uh, in the history of a distressed country, and they were willing uh, to give him a try. And more and more people did that. Did they do that out of opportunism? Did they do that out of, of full idealism? That's a matter. Uh, that's a matter of debate, and and Germans at the time debated that. But since they didn't really know why people were crossing the threshold to the Nazis, they assumed that most people went because they wanted to, and that and that made the power of the Nazis and the appeal of the Nazis even more uh, strong. So that any illusion that the Nazis created through their choreography. Uh, national unity and national appeal actually became real as more and more people became convinced that most Germans were behind the Nazis. And so the opposition and the resistance had no chance, had no traction, had no ground to stand on anymore, and themselves began to consider whether they were not obsolescent and, and shouldn't uh, also adjust to the new age. Right, because the only signs and slogans that are marching in the streets are the Nazis. And the Nazis are very good at the stagecraft all over Germany, right? I mean, torchlight parades, marching bands, people thrown up against walls. I mean, it, it's, it's a 24-7 uh, there was promotion. A tremendous desire. There was a tremendous desire in Germany for the signs of unity and, uh, and for, for Germans coming together. Uh, at the same time, many Germans acquiesced in the violence against what they then called terrorists, that there were uh, some socialists and Marxists and communists that had to be dealt with, but that otherwise um, the hope was that Germany uh, would reunify, and this was appealing to many people. How many? We don't know, but um, it's certainly 50%. Uh, in the first weeks, and then it creeps up. This percentage creeps up. With how much fervor, with how much dedication, we don't know. This is the question. How do these collective nouns overlap, Germans, 
and many people had, but they all responsibility. They, as Germans in this new age, had to consider what are the claims of race, what are the claims of nation, what is the importance of Germany, above and beyond individual freedom or constitutional rights. And so people reconsidered um, what, what were the claims of community versus the claims of the rule of law. And more and more people uh, decided that the claims of community were stronger. How does the anti-Semitism fit into this program? I mean, the uh, people are going around in the streets carrying signs saying, drop dead Jews, right? The distinction bet- between the Aryan and the Jew, and who's a German and who isn't a German, I mean, th- those kinds of questions. One of the most popular Nazi slogans was, uh, Jews drop dead, Germany make. It's cause and effect. Uh, Germany will awake if the Jews are brought to be dropped dead. Um, this was uh, a key Nazi slogan that echoed throughout uh, the marketplaces and the street uh, in this winter of 1933. But what was very crucial is that Hitler and the Nazis portrayed uh, the Jews as attacking Germany. They attacked Germany with, atro- with atrocity propaganda. The Jews become enemies of, of, of the state, enemies of the German and they, and they occupy the roles of the enemies of Germany in World War I, who had also spread atrocity propaganda and so-called lies about Germans. And so what the Nazis are very effectively able to do at the end of March 1933 is to suggest that the Germans and Germany and German honor as such is being besmirched by the Allies under the direction of the Jews in 1933, as had been the case in World War I. So all the patriotism of World War I is being rekindled, and the Jews suddenly become the enemies of the Germans, who are only defending themselves against Versailles, against dishonor, against lies, against propaganda. And it is this that creates the support for the boycott of uh, April 1, Saturday, April 1, 1933. And there is tremendous support because Germans thought they were defending themselves. What is the boycott? The boycott is punishment of uh, Germany's Jews for what international Jews are saying about the new Third Reich. I see. Now, of course, what the news... There was a huge rally, for example, in New York City at Madison Square Garden on 27 March uh, 1933. So this is like four days, five days before uh, the boycott. Most of the indictments against Germany are true, but the Germans won't see it that way. They see themselves as victims of the Allies, of the international community in 1933, as they uh, had been in World War I. And this is the great... A propaganda coup of the Nazis. And it is, it is this sense that the Germans were once again being attacked that uh, brings many, many Germans onto the side of the Nazis. Even people who disagreed with the boycott write in their diaries that, well, I don't agree with the boycott. It's unchristian. But 
there's too much Jewish influence. It's true. There's either too much Jewish intellectuals in Berlin occupying positions of government and, and culture, or there's the uh, Eastern European Polish Jews who immigrated to Germany after World War I. But either way, they always have a but. So they're, they're, they're against the boycott, but, but, there is a problem. Meanwhile, you have the SA walking into cafes or pastry shops, and if they see a man who they suspect to be a Jew, they, and sitting there with a German Aryan woman, they grab him and throw him in the street. Correct. This is, again, about restoring German honor. So uh, just as uh, nationalists had attacked German women consorted with Allied occupation troops after World War I, whether they were Belgian or American or French, now also they are protecting the honor of German women who are consorting with German Jews who are the agents of Germany's enemy, uh, Germany's enemies, uh, in 1933, um, who had also been German Germany's enemies uh, back in World War One, so they're protecting German honor, and they're going in and making sure that Jewish men, uh, the Jewish German love does not exist. The Jewish men and um, German women uh, are, are 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 not to be found together, and that's the story of the summer of 1933. But it's also the story that you talk about in your chapters your Jewish grandmother and the administration of life, and, and together with the propaganda and the torchlight parades and the beating in the streets, you all of a sudden got an enormous bureaucracy trying to establish uh, uh, racial, ethnic, yeah, paper. The punishment boycott of April 1st was followed up very quickly by state legislation of April, we're talking 60 days into the Third Reich, which prohibits with one Jewish grandmother to um, work for the state, whether it's as a mailman or a school or train conductor or a German Jews lost essential rights because they could not because they could not be employed by federal state authorities. And that was on seven, the 7th of April. And suddenly, uh, they were much more than second-class citizens. They were pariahs. They were enemies of the state. And, that, and, and, and after that, then you have this groundswell of grassroots uh, activity to prohibit German-Jewish love. This policing of couples and cafes and people on walks in the countryside. And all right, now talk about your chapter on the enormous planet, because as what's going on in Germany in these first hundred days is being noticed. The world's in the midst of a Great Depression. Forty percent, thirty percent of people in Britain and uh, the United States are idled, and seemingly a sense of national unity. European politics politics had been divided between the left and the right, between communists and fascists and nationalists. Many people didn't accept democracy in France. 
Um, there was huge divisions in, in England following the general strike in 1926. Uh, and so what they saw in Germany was an expression of energy, of movement, of doing something new, of um, reconciling classes, destroying Marxists, uh, countering the Bolshevik threat. Germany was a huge agent of action. And it was scary, it was intimidating, and it was extremely, extremely um, uh, uh, appealing uh, to Europeans, depending on where they stood. But nobody uh, could resist uh, this sense of attraction uh, and awe to this, uh, to this Germany that seemed to be rising up and finally doing something. Um, and uh, whether it was destroying Marxism or uh, reconciling classes, Germany had these action verbs, and that made it this enormous planet uh, that attracted attention uh, for the next 15 years. Germany dominated international news from 1933 to 1945. Right. I mean, the, the Goering and people like that appeared on the cover of Time magazine, and Mara... Anne Morrow Lindbergh writes a book praising fascism as the future. Exactly. She, she saw fascism as an airplane, as a fast, efficient, powerful machine that would move humankind forward, whereas she thought liberalism and democracy were old-fashioned, uh, were corrupt, um, but fascism was new, efficient, strong, uh, authoritarian in the sense of having authority and direction, just like an airplane. I think the Lindbergh saw Nazi Germany like an airplane, and therefore they saw it as the future. Peter, talk about your last chapter, The 100 Days, where you come to the conclusion and draw the parallel between the 100 days of Napoleon, the 100 days of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal and the, and, the, and the Nazi Hundred Days. And what was the great achievement of the Nazis? One of the things that we see in history is how fast things change in a very unexpected fashion. We see this with the French Revolution uh, back in 1789. We see this with the fall of the Berlin Wall almost 200 years later. And we see it in these 100-day intervals uh, sprinkled throughout history. One of them is Hitler's first 100 days, where he consolidates power uh, based on terror as well as consent in an amazingly fast period of time. One, another interval is FDR's 100 days, where he changes the mood in the United States between March and June 1933. But the original 100 days is the totally unexpected reappearance of Napoleon from his exile from the Mediterranean island of Elba. Uh, and he marches to Paris, and more and more soldiers uh, follow him. Uh, more and more generals who had disowned him return to him. And he marches triumphantly into Paris and, uh, and, and, and reestablish French hegemony uh, in Europe. And people in Paris had to decide what to do, where, whose side were they on. And many of them went back to Napoleon. But it was an unexpected choice 
and it was an extremely rapid reappearance of someone who had abdicated and been written off as a museum figure uh, relegated to the annals of the past. But then he comes back. He comes back for 100 days. And so the history is full of these surprises. Last question. I mean, it's it's really a wonderful book, and I, because it's so full of detail and specific uh, instance. But as a last uh, question, do you find any parallel uh, with the hundred days of Donald Trump? <laughs> I mean, uh, you, you, to read some of our newspaper columnists, they're they're saying that the democracy is dead and the world has changed. The first hundred days of uh, Hitler, because there was sufficient resistance from civic society uh, to block uh, the rapid accumulation of power. And nonetheless, if you ask students, especially students of color, did something change between uh, fall semester 2016 and spring semester 2017, people would say yes. There was a license uh, to talk, to give, give air to resentments, uh, to be prejudicial. Something had changed. 100 days is a very small period of time, but something changed in America between, say, 2010 with the Tea Party um, and 2016. Something changed in Europe. We have Brexit. We have the uh, authoritarian leaders in Poland coming to power in 2014, in Hungary around the same time. And so over the course of a couple of years, the whole temperature, the whole atmosphere uh, in Europe has changed. The difference between now and then is there's more pushback uh, today uh, than, we're, than there was. Than there, was, than there was with Hitler. The, the, the grammar of politics changed, and therefore positions on all sorts of issues, whether you're talking about immigrants or the border uh, or who belongs, who doesn't belong. This has shifted and shifted dramatically in the last 10 years. And so, so something that had not at all been predicted, say, in the year 2000, when we switched centuries and millennia, uh, has, has come to pass. I don't give it staying power, but, uh, but the atmosphere is different. But anyway... I want to say that your book is a, is a fine book, and a, thank you very much for speaking to us today, Peter Fritscher. Well, thank you, and it was an honor talking to you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.